Welcome back to Talking PFAS. And if you're joining us for the first time, welcome. We're now on iTunes, by the way, so please feel free to leave a review at the end. I'm your host, Kayleen Bell. Every episode of Talking PFAS, I'll be bringing you a candid conversation I've had with a wide range of people and experts. There is a lot to talk about when it comes to this issue, and that's why I wanted to start the podcast. In today's discussion of Talking PFAS, you're going to hear from the Federal Member for Patterson, Meryl Swanson, and I'll be asking her why Labor voted no in the Senate against Brian Burston's motion for compensation for residents affected by PFAS. And please feel free to send me your questions at talkingpfas at gmail.com. How are you, Meryl? I'm very well, thanks, Kayleen. I was up at the Williamtown hearing and heard your statement about your frustrations with the way that PFAS has been dealt with in your community. Would you like to start with a brief wrap of your statement that you made at the Williamtown public hearing? Uh, Look, you know, some of the points that I made at the public hearing were things that the community have fed back to me directly. The first point is that people just feel very abandoned and also they don't want the chemical coming off the base any longer. They don't want it in their soil or in their water or in their bodies. I think that's the main points that have been made to me since this issue first became apparent to us, which is just on three years ago now. At the hearing, I took the opportunity to make the committee aware of people's frustrations and also to really appeal to government members or the one government member that did attend the hearing, disappointingly, only the one. Who was that? The chair, Andrew Lamming. He's uh, a Liberal member of the coalition government. It was a very frustrating experience to just have him there because I felt that it was an opportunity for the community to convey directly to members of the government their feelings and their sentiment about the issue. But it was good that those members of the committee that did turn up got to hear very impassioned pleas from people. And I did make a statement and in my statement I said that it was a great pity that the people of Williamtown had had to become litigious and take matters into their own hands by forming a class action and pursuing that. You mentioned in your submission about babies being born with extremely high levels. Yes, so we know that there were babies born with very high levels, inexplicably high levels, uh, and of course that's a concern. And, you know, I understand that their parents followed all of the advice. That's, again, another concern and doesn't sit well with any of us. You talk about the maps being issued by New South Wales EPA and Department of Defence. They were varied in the early days. I know there's bigger things now, three years on. What confidence can other people have that this contamination isn't going to reach them? when the red zone mapping has changed several times. Yeah, I mean, we've had three different iterations of the red zone mapping, or now known as areas of investigation. There were many people that had a lot of local knowledge that questioned those original maps and what they saw to be as inconsistencies that was borne out to be correct. So I think that local knowledge, particularly local water flow knowledge, hydrology, geology, topography, all of those things are critically important 
when you're mapping, but also local knowledge. And, and, you know, we had stalwarts of the area that have been there generationally, you know, families that have been there for many generations, old timers who have watched floods come and go and dry patches and they know the land and the water and the water table very well. And I think that it's imperative that authorities take those people's opinions into consideration when they're doing any of these maps around the country. Actually, I think you make a really good point because when I was up there at the Wormtown hearing and there was this whole mapping talk, which was very complex, but they clearly know the area well. And not only that, but they know a lot about PFAS. Why is everybody in their silos with this issue? It's such a big issue. There's a lot of knowledge with this community. Why can't Defence or the government harness this knowledge that they have and work together? Wouldn't that give them a little bit of sense of empowerment in this situation where they feel powerless? Yeah, potentially. I think that was one of the difficulties with how it was initially handled by the state EPA. You know, that red zone contamination, don't eat your eggs, the fishing bans, all of those things created a lot of disempowerment for members of the community and also panic. People felt panicked. What does this mean for me? I was working on radio on that fateful day, September 4, 2015. I'll never forget that day when it was announced. It was a Friday. Reading the newspaper and hearing it on the radio and then working on my own radio program from nine o'clock in the morning and having people phoning in saying, I'm on the front page of the paper. My place is in that map. My place is in this red zone. What does that mean for me? So I think that there's been mishandling of this from day dot and I think that has certainly exacerbated people's fear and also feeling of disempowerment and anxiety and all of those things which now three years down the track have been heightened and also people have gone through all those stages of grief and despair and getting angry. From the time that residents found out about the contamination in 2015 and they did find out via the media which isn't great, from that time How long did it take before they were given any precautionary advice about the chemicals? It would have been quite a traumatic time not knowing what they could and couldn't do. Look, I can't remember exactly the time frame, but I think that that initial advice was that if you were in the red zone, you couldn't eat your eggs. You know, we knew that very early on and of course the fishing bans were put in place very quickly. A spokesperson from the New South Wales Department of Primary Industries in response to questions about the fishing closures responded and said the fishing closures had been in place since September 2015 and were implemented while extensive testing and analysis of seafood in these estuaries was undertaken, fishing closures of Tilligree Creek and Fullerton Cove in response to the Williamtown RAF PFAS contamination were lifted on the 1st of October 2016, with the exception of the closure on the taking of Dusky Flathead in the Hunter River, which remained in place until April 2017. Those things contributed to the uncertainty of the situation and people hadn't been contacted directly. They'd found out through the media. So, you know, hindsight is a fantastic thing, but I really honestly believe if people had have been contacted directly, if they had have been door knocked, people had have been telephoned and said, look, we need to make a time to come and talk to you about an issue that's going on in your area. I know that's incredibly labour intensive, but I really think that it would have been a far better way to have broken this news to people or even requested that people come along to community meetings. But to pick up a newspaper 
or to turn, jump in the car to go to work or take the kids to school and turn on the radio and hear it. It's a shock. There was the male resident up there who was driving home from work. He was in the preview episode mm, and he yes. hears it on the radio. What about the produce? We, we know fishing was closed and then reopened, but New South Wales DPI have told me in an email that they have not tested any cattle in New South Wales. Does it concern you that New South Wales meat is not getting tested from PFAS? Look, I think that we should have some testing of beef, particularly out of Williamtown. I think that would be a sensible thing to do. I totally understand the concept of tolerable daily intake, and that's what is currently being touted, I suppose. Uh, You know, people saying, well, there is a threshold and the chemicals are widely used. We know that. So people who beef farm from Williamtown in the past have been able to slaughter their own animals and consume them. They've been told not to do that now because of that tolerable daily intake. So if they were to eat their meat three nights a week or three days a week or however many, then they would be building on the PFAS in their body. The theory is that, you know, it's now dispersed so everyone gets a little bit. So, yeah, that in itself, you do have to wonder about that. The New South Wales Department of Health has got fact sheets available regarding TDIs, the tolerable daily intake for PFAS. You can see those on their website. But for residents that already have high levels of PFAS in their blood, these TDIs offer no reassurance given that they don't know how much PFAS chemicals might be in the food that is sold in our supermarkets. Here is Williamtown resident Jenny Robinson sharing her concerns about food safety and TDIs at the Williamtown public hearing into PFAS in July 2018. We can't eat the eggs from our chooks or grow our own vegetables. We don't know if the meat and vegetables that we buy now at the supermarket contain PFAS as we don't know where it's sourced from. We already have high levels of these chemicals in our blood and the tolerable daily intake is a farce because our levels are already high. I just think this might be an issue for government to consider carefully because DPI said in the email to me the theory is that everyone doesn't eat from the same source. Mm. But everyone I know where I live we all shop local we all shop at the same butcher the same shops just Mm. near home I don't know but I can see that uh, on the surface from a very practical standpoint we've all questioned the logic and the theory behind that so it is something that needs to be investigated and it's something that I would imagine the state government would want to be thinking about most definitely but I do think that it is something that we really do need to consider because of the image Mm. of Australian beef being clean and green. In a fact sheet about PFAS in livestock Agriculture Victoria say livestock can potentially be exposed to PFAS through the consumption of contaminated surface water, groundwater, pasture or soil. They also said there is no maximum level for PFAS for food products sourced from livestock. Dr David Champness is the Principal Veterinary Officer for Agriculture Victoria. He recently gave a presentation on dealing with PFAS in livestock at the PFAS Summit in Sydney, hosted by the Australasian Land and Groundwater Association. There's no domestic or international regulated maximum limits for PFAS in any foods, or not that I'm aware of anyway. And currently there's no restrictions on domestic or international trade in agriculture or aquaculture products related to PFAS. 
the um, Integrity Systems Company, which is a company that administers the Livestock Production Assurance Program, which is Australia's livestock food safety program to protect food safety, has advised us that there's no need to address PFAS on the national vendor declaration. When livestock producers sell their sheep or cattle for market, they fill out a national vendor declaration and then it talks about what chemicals the animals have been treated with in the last 30 or 60 days. And so there's no need to address PFAS on that for farmers. So why are we worrying at all? If there's no limits, if the authorities have said we don't have to worry about it on a national vendor declaration, why, why are farmers worried? Governments use a very precautionary approach when it comes to food safety and public safety and political safety. If into the future there should be a standard developed for PFAS in meat for human consumption, then industry and government have got the compliance tools there. Labor was in government, weren't they, when the contamination was known by defence? 2012? Yes, actually, I think, yes, we were we were in government then. So you personally did not know about PFAS until when the community did in 2015? Absolutely. I mean, I was like everyone else. I went to work that day and picked up the paper and went, what is this? I was asked by some residents to find out Labor's stance on this because we know that they voted against Brian Burston's motion as well as Liberal's. It was 17 votes from Labor and 17 from Liberal against Brian Burston's motion for buybacks on the 15th of August. Yes, so you're talking about a Senate motion that was put forward. So I sit in the House of Representatives. Yes, I know that you didn't personally vote because you don't vote in the Senate. But from the residents' point of view, they hear that Labor have voted against Brian Burston's motion. And then you've got you on the ground... You've got Kate Washington, yourself, and I know that you care about this community Mm. because I was there all day and I saw you both there all day Mm. and afterwards. Mm. But what is Labor going to do for them if they get into the next election because they don't seem to support what you two are doing? It's interesting. We're constantly talking to the community about options and, and ways forward. And what I've spent the last two years doing is communicating that back to my colleagues in Canberra and making them very much aware of the issue on the ground up there. And really, we are taking this very seriously because we know that we may well be in government. But the real difficulty, and I suppose I didn't appreciate this until I was elected and got into opposition and just saw the way things work, is access to information. And from opposition, you just don't have it. So the departments and the government have access to the information. They have the power and the control because they have all the information. From opposition, you are constantly guessing about everything. And that's been a difficulty. What information are you missing in regards to PFAS for Labor to make a policy? Um, I suppose we're missing a lot of that detail that the Defence Department would have that other departments may have. Deputy Secretary of Defence, Estate and Infrastructure, Mr Steve Grezkowiak, says Defence is publishing thousands of documents online. All of the work that we have done by the environmental consultants is all published on websites that are freely and publicly available, thousands and thousands and thousands of pages. And, you know, and we're looking at things that we can do. Look, I'm not in a position to, you know, preempt anything that we might do in terms of an election promise, but I can say to you that we are looking at what we can do. It doesn't give the community much confidence with the next election coming up. They want to know who is going to fight for them for PFAS. Yeah, sure. And I mean, look, I've got to tell you that, you know, I'm fighting for them every day for it. In terms of that particular motion, it was an unfortunate motion in that 
Brian didn't seek to work with us to word it in a way that we could have supported it and I think it's one of those things where it's all care but no responsibility. It's easy to make blanket statements and promises but those things have to be able to be enacted and that's what you need to do when you're in government and that's the sort of detail. So costings, all sorts of details like that that we just at this point we don't know uh, and we're looking you know, at all of the available options and I've said all along that we need to give people options. I don't know what they look like. Why did Labor vote against Brian Burston's motion in the Senate for compensation for PFAS-affected residents? There's a couple of things I want to say about that. Firstly, as you know, I'm in the House of Representatives. However, as I understand it, you can't put up motions in the Senate that involve supply or money. So I understand that it it was an illegitimate motion in that sense, that component of the motion. When I did talk with Meryl, she also said that you can't put up motions in the Senate that involve supply or money. So in that way, it was an illegitimate motion. What do you say about that? I'd suggest it's not an illegitimate motion. Um, We certainly cannot put money bills forward, but we can certainly put up motions that um, may have an impact in a financial sense. So was it an illegitimate motion? No, it's not an illegitimate motion. If that was the case, it would have been thrown out before it even went onto the business paper. These are vetted by the Clerk of the Senate and the Parliamentary Council. Uh, And if they are uh, inappropriate, we are told so. I've had a couple that have been inappropriate that did involve um, money bills, but a motion is not a bill as such. It is just a statement of support or otherwise for a particular issue. That was Senator for New South Wales, Brian Burston, representing the United Australia Party in response to Meryl Swanson's comments about the motion that he moved in the Senate on the 15th of August 2018. And look, the unfortunate thing is that Brian didn't approach me or us at all to try and work with the wording of that motion for something that we would have been able to support, which I think is really unfortunate. Well, I don't word motions to suit a particular political party because they want me to uh, word something where it doesn't have a financial impact on the budget. That's not what it's about. We want to compensate people in the right manner and appropriately. Not everyone will want to move from the area. They might just want to remediate their property. I think it's a motion that uh, should have been supported. I don't change motions to certain particular political parties. I put motions forward in the best interest of the community and those people affected. And he did have quite a bit of power, you know, when he was involved with One Nation in that he had some bargaining potential with Matthias Corman uh, and unfortunately he didn't exercise that power when he had the opportunity to really call for something meaningful for the people of Williamtown and I was very disappointed about that at the time. I was actually hoping that he would have used that leverage then to really get something out of the government and he didn't. Certainly when I was with One Nation we came up with a substantial package that we negotiated in support for the company tax cuts. Then when Hanson flipped on the company tax cuts everything went down the drain including the negotiated area of PFAS. Now Matthias Corman When that happened, he said, as a show of good faith, Brian, I'm going to include this in the budget. He included something like 80-odd million dollars, 55 million for remediation work and 35 million for research and so on. Was that your doing? That was my doing. Do you feel frustrated when you're working really hard and you see 17 of your party colleagues 
voting no, does that frustrate you? Look, it's it's really interesting because, as I said, I saw it more as an unfortunate stunt. Brian is well-meaning. I'm sure that, you know, he wants to get a result out of this and really it was a wedge rather than anything meaningful and I feel very frustrated about that. When I met with Meryl and we discussed the motion, she described it as an unfortunate stunt Do you think by that she means that you wanted to call a division so that you could get the votes on the Hansard record? I'm not involved in stunts. If I have to jump up on the top of a tree and yell and scream to get a PFAS resolution, then I'll do that. If you want to call that a stunt, fine. Yes, I call a division. It was designed to have names placed on record through Hansard. Uh, so that the people can go to Hansard, have a look at those who support or otherwise the decontamination, the remediation of sites and buybacks, essentially buybacks. Um, the Labor Party wanted me to change it and soften the uh, the wording, which I refused to do, and that's one of the reasons they didn't support it. But uh, it certainly wasn't a stunt. I'm not involved in stunts as far as issues like this are concerned. If they want to describe it as that, I'll wear the badge proudly. So that motion wasn't supported on a number of fronts. The Greens did something similar you know, earlier in the year. But look, we absolutely need to land in a place, but that wasn't the way to get there. Do you think when the Joint Standing Committee released their report to the government, do you think that Labor might accept that report as enough evidence to be able to make a decision on their future policies regarding PFAS? Look, I'm sure that we'll be closely considering that report and the recommendations. But at this stage, there is still an onus on the current government. You know, they're the ones that are in government right now. And we have said all along, talk to us about this. And there's just been a reluctance, which Mm. is a great pity. Have you been able to have a conversation with the new Prime Minister yet, Scott Morrison, about PFAS? Uh, No, I haven't had a conversation with him about that at all. And have you any idea what his thoughts are on this matter? I've got no sense of his thoughts on it. Malcolm Turnbull, I invited him many times to the electorate to meet with people and he didn't come. I've in fact invited Scott Morrison as well via a speech, a very impassioned speech that I gave when that was all happening. Again, I'm calling on Scott Morrison to actually come and sit down with people and hear their stories. Bill has been to the electorate and he met with a group of residents in my office. Meryl Swanson is talking about the leader of the opposition and leader of the Labor Party, Bill Shorten. To talk it through and we have some sense of the grief that people are you know, mm. feeling. I haven't heard Bill talk publicly about it, though, much in the media, unless I'm missing something. Has he? I'm not aware of him making it an issue in media speeches that I've heard. No, that's true. I haven't heard him speak about it directly. I think he may have made a couple of speeches in Parliament that may have referenced it, but it's definitely something that we need to keep pushing and working Mm. on. You had the Shadow Defence Minister in your electorate last week. Is that true? Yes, that's correct. And did he make any announcements in that electorate about what Labor would do? No, we've made no announcements at this stage. It's not just New South Wales, is it, Meryl? There's over 90 sites named by the Sydney Morning Herald. Carrie Fellner's wonderful investigative journalism that started in Newcastle. It really should be an election issue. It's certainly going to be an election issue for me. It's already an issue. And there are those other sites around the country, most definitely. I am working every day on this in in ways that people, 
you know you don't you don't get out in the paper or on the radio every day talking about it because there's a there's a certain threshold where people just switch off about this so I'm constantly evaluating who do I talk to next where do I go next what data do I need to try and pull together you know we're, I'm always trying to talk to people get information together present you know the case to people both on my side and also putting pressure on the government so that we can formulate a policy because it is a really big issue and as you said there are lots of sites across Australia but Williamtown has its own features. Yes you said it was unique I know other people struggling with it might wonder why why is Williamtown unique for the listeners that don't understand? I think there are a number of reasons why it's unique firstly the way people were told it was really very shocking to read about it that way so it wasn't well handled from the beginning and there, there has been subsequent economic loss because of that because of just the very poor handling. You mean people buying property that they never would have bought if they knew about the contamination? Uh, Yes, but also, no, just the way it was revealed to the community in in such a shocking way that created stigma and panic. So the economic loss you're talking about, are you talking about property values? I am. Yes, I'm talking about property values. The other portion of this in terms of making Williamtown very different, our water table is very high and also uh, the Tomago sand beds uh, that are used as a backup water supply for Newcastle and the Central Coast have been impacted. So these things make Williamtown very unique. I think that there's been clear disadvantage there. You know, the deeper bores uh, haven't been contaminated because what happens is the contaminant leaches down through the sandy soil and that's the other thing that makes Williamtown very unique. It's a floodplain on sand dunes so the water sits for a bit but runs down very quickly and it takes the leachate with it. Yeah and even when properties are in flood one farmer told me his is a metre underwater easily. That's right so it's very close to the sea and there are lots of open drains so drainage and water is a big issue. I will talk to hydrologists about the water table issues and things. Are you aware of the project that Dr Brett Turner is working on at the Newcastle University? I believe that you are aware of that one. I do know about his work. He and Professor Scott Sloan have done some really good work using hemp seed powder. Dr Brett Turner did apply for the ARC grant, the Australian Research Council grant, but unfortunately didn't get the funding. He's got a brilliant natural solution which can remove 97% and 98% of the PFAS chemicals and yet he hasn't got his next stage of funding What do you think about that? So I'm actually due to have um, a conversation with Brett uh, in the next couple of weeks. I think I've seen that in the diary. So I'm actually looking forward to finding out a little bit more about why he was advised he wasn't successful and and just taking that further. Because, you know, I'm as curious as anyone as to why they weren't successful and I want to talk to them a little bit more about that. I don't know how those grants are judged in terms of their merit. I'm really keen to talk to him about that and see why he wasn't successful and perhaps there might be a way forward in the future. And I spoke to a remediation expert, you heard him in the trailer, Associate Professor Robert Niven, and he said that Australian scientists are actually leading the way on PFAS. And I said, really? Because... I I wasn't aware, but he said we are. They just need more money. Yeah, that's an interesting proposition. And I've said all along, out of this terrible, bleak situation, there is an opportunity to learn more about this. And that's not. I'm not saying that from a position of why I want my people in Williamtown to become guinea pigs. I'm not suggesting that for one moment. What I am saying is that this is a global issue. 
we have the issue here and we need to try and turn this awful problem into an opportunity as well by perhaps learning more about it, becoming experts and not only helping our own people but potentially helping other people. Were you surprised at the Williamtown hearing to hear Defence say that it's still leaving the base? No, not at all. I knew that. We all know that. What you have is a very concentrated form of the chemical pumped into a very small area over many years and it's highly contaminated and concentrated and it's continuing to move off the base and that's part of people's frustrations you know they want that stopped in defense of defense and I'm not in the habit of defending them at all but I can understand that there would be difficulty I get that it's hard but from what I understand it's not impossible but again I'm not an engineer but I would like to see a more concerted effort most definitely like everyone it's completely frustrating to think that it's still coming off and still contaminating people's places of course that's a huge frustration we all want that sorted out if you were interviewing defence they'd tell you that they've spent a lot of money and I've got no doubt that they have but clearly more needs Mm. to be done you said in your in the Williamtown hearing if the primary stressor had been addressed there would be no need for additional mental health for these people. Is the primary stressor that you're talking about there the contamination leaving the base? Yes, partly. That is most definitely part of the primary stressor, the fact that people can see that there's work going on on the base, that there's water leaving the base. People feel frustrated. Is there another primary stressor now for these people? Oh, I think one of the primary stressors is that they feel that they have no options. So, you know, they do feel trapped and the economic loss is real. Many other people, when you've got something bad going on in your life, you can see a counsellor, you can take it in your hands and make a choice, make a change, but these people can't do that. Yes, and that's been, you know, that I think that's been one of the main concerns. I mean, all of any of us can do is try and put ourselves in their situation and think, well, how would any of us feel Mm. in that situation? And that's what I constantly do. I'm in the area a lot. I drive through the area a lot. I stop and talk to people a lot. I visit their homes. I visit their businesses. I'm actually in the contamination area a lot because I want to have the understanding of what it's like to live that day in day out put your head on the pillow every night and think we're still here what's going on with this so you know I I get it I really get it I looked out at the rain yesterday at my place and as lovely as the rain was I couldn't help but think of the Williamtown residents looking out their window knowing that the water treatment plant doesn't work in the rain Mm. but that water treatment plant they've decommissioned anyway Mm. but I think that rain for them would be probably not a nice thing to have even though every farmer wants the rain yeah it's it's definitely at the moment with the drought a double-edged sword you know we need the rain but the falling rain poses problems Mm. you know especially in terms of flooding when I mean we're certainly not at that point at the moment the manna from heaven as it used to be has now created the disaster from underneath there was a great line what use is a rural property if you can't live a rural lifestyle that's very powerful when you hear that spoken about you know that as I said they might as well be in apartments in the centre of Newcastle uh, because they can't really do much outside and that's not why most of them have got their properties. There's also a lot more that needs to be done in this area from the council. One resident raised at Williamtown she might have been a salt ash resident but she hasn't been able to get two outdoor town water taps she has begged them for these taps because her bores are polluted 
and she wants to be able to protect her property in case of fire. Is this relevant because of the fire that you've just had? Yes, I mean, clearly there's lots of lots of issues like that at, at a local level. I know that the state government uh, have provided town water, but, you know, clearly there are things like that that you don't consider unless you're living in that circumstances. And that's why, I mean, at the very beginning of this conversation, I said to you that the way this was handled from the beginning was problematic. What should have happened, yeah. Meryl? What should have happened is that when the EPA worked out that there was a problem, they should have then used shoe leather and visited people, knocked on their doors, telephoned them directly and said, we have learned that there is contamination coming from RAF Base Williamtown, which may have impacted your property. Can we come and talk to you about it? You know, people should have been given the due respect that they deserved rather than a press release going out, having a big splash in a newspaper or a radio news grab. It's bad enough to have someone knock on your door and say, look, I think your place might be contaminated. That too would be shocking. I mean, there's no easy way to deliver this and I understand that. But the methodology was poor from the start and more consideration should have been given to that to go and actually talk to people and say, look, we need to do some investigation on your place. We need to find out a bit more about this. This is what we know so far. Look, I just think it could have been handled a lot better from the very beginning. And at the Williamtown inquiry, there was a lot of talk about, I'll use the analogy that was given there, of the missing bus driver with this issue. They were talking about the need for a different regulator rather than defence, regulating the clean-up watching over all of the PFAS in Australia. I think you might be alluding to something like a national EPA. That's been spoken about and I can see some merit for that. One of the difficulties for this situation has been that a New South Wales government environmental watchdog, the EPA, the Environmental Protection Authority, has carriage of land that the state has responsibility for, except for defence. So the actual area where the contamination is emanating from isn't controlled by the EPA. So this is part of the problem where we've seen very clear areas of delineation of responsibility. So the EPA has responsibility for land outside of the base, but not the base. The base is responsible for itself and not the land outside. So that in itself has created difficulties. So there have been conversations about the need for a national EPA. That's a, you know, another suite of things that we could consider. I think that people generally found that to be another level of frustration. The other point about this is the polluter needs to be removed from the remediation. And why do you say that, Meryl? Just because I think it's pretty obvious in any situation like that, or even if they are involved in the remediation, there needs to be some oversight. And I've got no doubt that Defence have actually made some genuine attempts at doing this but let's face it they're not contamination experts they're not remediation experts they're defense mm. experts it's not within their remit to fix this you know if you, if you if you actually wanted to cut defense some slack and say that's not their main charge you know they are charged with the defense of the country so they're, they're charged with at Williamtown flying fast jets and looking after us that way so it's not actually their job but Someone has to step in and this is where the government could make it their business to step in and say, look, we know we've got a problem here and we need to sort it out. 
the PFAS task force, which used to be under the Prime Minister and Cabinet. It's now been moved to Department of Environment. We heard that announcement at Williamtown. How do you feel about that move? Oh, look, this is something that Labor has called for all along, that this needs to be a whole-of-government holistic approach to this. This is clearly a big issue, and we were hopeful when it was moved to Prime Minister and Cabinet because we thought, well, at least now, finally, someone's going to take responsibility for it. That, unfortunately, didn't happen. We've seen it shuffled around through health, environment and energy, now environment, uh, defence, you know, for a bit there in the beginning, and we've had three different Prime Ministers three different defence ministers, three assistant defence ministers, two inquiries, three reiterations of the red zone and various other manoeuvring. So it really has been poorly handled. Do you think Department of Environment is equipped just by itself to handle the issue? No, I don't. I do think it requires a whole-of-government approach. We know there's a budget for them, but I don't actually know what they're doing. And I was wondering if you know when they were under the Prime Minister and Cabinet, was there more discussion about PFAS or just the same as now? Uh, I certainly went and had a meeting with those people, not with the Prime Minister, but with people from... Department of Prime Minister uh, and Cabinet from the task force, people charged with it. And it's at the time, it, they seem to be nodding in all the right places and empathising and listening very intently. But sadly, not much came from that. Maybe at the very least, it would be good to have some transparency for the residents listening of what's actually happening. What are the PFAS task force actually doing? Do you think that's something that you could move in Parliament? Yes. And, you know, I've, I've actually requested that information on a number of occasions and been like a lot of people just shuffled from one department to the other and the most recent letter that I've had has said that you know it's it's now all going via health and environment and I did meet with the Minister for Health uh, at the time Greg Hunt uh, and he assured me that you know they were doing everything within their remit to uh, look at some research uh, through the Research Council of Australia but again, when it's piecemeal like that, it's very difficult. When you say it's with de- health, are you saying PFAS Task Force straddles health and environment? Well, look, that was my observation. Um, but after the last fortnight, month, uh, you know, most of us don't know where no. it sits. No, because at the Williamtown hearing, the senators that were asking the questions had no idea that the PFAS Task Force had even been moved. Mm. And it was moved in April. Mm. Meryl, what can you tell me about the expert health panel's report on the health effects from PFAS? It was a long-awaited report that was actually published two months after the promised deadline uh, on an obscure website. So it wasn't even really publicly put out with a proper press release or a statement. They just popped it up on this very difficult and hard-to-find website and even within its two-page executive summary, there were extremely concerning conflicts. Namely, at the top of page one, the summary advised that important health effects for individuals exposed to PFAS cannot be ruled out. Uh, That was based on the current evidence. So they said that at the very top of it. And then at the bottom of the same page, it it said, evidence does not support any specific health or disease screening or other health interventions. So that to me just seemed like a conflict. 
And the very report stated, and I quote, the most concerning signal reported in the scientific studies for life-threatening human disease is a possible link with an increased risk of two uncommon cancers, testicular and kidney cancer. So not surprisingly, this just made people feel more suspicious. So when the expert health panel said, look, we've reviewed the literature and we can't see any problems or any health impacts you know even though their own summary in one paragraph it said there are no health effects and then on the other it said that there could be are they doing enough with their research i think that there are more questions to be asked than there have been answers provided at this point what do you think needs to happen now the top couple of things that you think need to happen and we'll wrap up this interview look i think what i think doesn't really matter what is important is what people are asking me for and the three things that they want they want the chemical band they want it to stop coming from the base and they want to be given options to move on with their life. That's what I'm looking for. And you'll be doing everything in your power to get your Labor colleagues on board with that? Absolutely. Yes, I will be. I hope you enjoyed today's episode. Please download and share so more people can hear this. Next episode of Talking PFAS, I'll be bringing you a discussion with New South Wales Senator Brian Burston, who represents the United Australia Party. There was talk of normalisation. It was a little bit concerning. Goodness, I'm not sure you can normalise with PFAS. I think that's an impossible ask. Surely we can't just let it sit there. No, we can't. It's got to be remediated. It's got to be, something's got to be done. And if they can't remediate the ground quickly, they have to relocate people and pay for it. It's as simple as that. Thank you once again for listening to Talking PFAS and feel free to leave a review on iTunes. Thanks very much. See you next time. All the information and audio in today's episode is copyright. Please contact me for permissions. Thank you.